Hi, this is episode 40 of K Ray Reads to You. Today we have part one of chapter 15 of Absolute Zero by Helen Cresswell. Chapter 15 The season of goodwill was now relentlessly approaching, and the Bagthorpes were laboring under an even stronger than usual sense of impending doom. They seemed hedged about left and right by deadlines. On top of all the last-minute Christmas preparations, they had to contend with a battalion of workmen in the house, a continual spate of unwanted prizes, and above all the certainty that when Christmas Day finally did come, all would not be joy unconfined. P.J. and Borderland Television would presumably see to that. The buying of gifts had been to some extent simplified this year by the presence in the house of the prizes so far won, and surplus to the Bagthorpe's own requirements. These were stacked in the dining-room, and it looked, as Mr. Bagthorpe observed, as if somebody were getting married and had forgotten to send out a wedding gift list. Who, for instance, he inquired, has had the lack of foresight to send off ten entries for toast racks in a household where the general gluttony is such that no toast ever gets as far as a rack? No one in this house who depended on toast getting as far as a rack could ever survive. They were runners-up. Tess told him. They could have been a dishwasher. We can give them as presents. They did, though not to one another. A good deal of ingenuity went into the sifting of the winnings and matching of each to a suitable recipient. All three yogurt makers, for instance, went to Aunt Celia, with the words first reserve and second reserve carefully painted on two of them by Rosie. She'll think it's a proper set of three, she told the others with satisfaction. When it was pointed out that the professionalism of the job was somewhat dissipated by the unorthodoxy of the spelling, she replied, "'It's old world. Aunt Celia will like it. She likes poetry.'" Mr. Bagthorpe's tool-kit was, as he had promised, designated for Uncle Parker, though Jack himself secretly went and bought him a floral cravat to match his lavender suit. As parcels arrived, from now on people took them to some hidden corner before unwrapping them, in case there was a usable Christmas gift inside. No one was very much looking forward to opening presents this year. They were all well aware that, as they were doing, so they would be done by. The renovation of the house proceeded relatively smoothly up until December 17th, when Mr. and Mrs. Bagthorpe were rash enough to go into Isham with their children, leaving Daisy alone with Grandma and Grandpa. Both the latter soon fell asleep, and Daisy, inevitably, once she had finished mixing Mrs. Bagthorpe's face powder into the flour bin because it smelled as if it would taste nice, set off in search of a real challenge in the way of reconciling the disparate. The decorators were finishing a room upstairs, and Daisy first went up and inquired whether she might help. This offer they declined with spirit. They were by now aware that it was Daisy's handiwork they were currently attempting to remove all trace of, and were now at last within sight of this goal. They were not, however, aware of just how deadly Daisy could be at her most creative, and ill-advisedly told her to go and paint something of her own. Daisy did not, of course, have her own paints with her, but she trotted off to Rosie's room to see if there were any oil tubes lying loose there. Disappointed to find only one tube of purple, from which she could squeeze only sufficient to daub a flower on the door with her finger, she went back downstairs. All the decorator's materials were scattered untidily on a large dust sheet in the still uncarpeted dining-room. Each tin of paint, 
the colours of which had been lovingly blended by Mrs. Bagthorpe herself, had been carefully labelled to avoid confusion. Sitting-room, window, wall, master-bedroom, walls one and two, and so on. The hall was already finished, but there were still a couple of inches of terracotta paint left in the tin. This Daisy carefully transferred to a large, almost full tin, labelled dining-room, all four walls. Using one of the rods, she stirred it thoroughly in, and was eventually rewarded by seeing the colour transformed to a murky khaki. She later said that this was meant to be toad colour, and that it had been Ariok's idea. "'He thought you'd like it,' she said. "'He likes toads best of anything, and he's being a good boy like Mummy said, or he won't get anything in his Christmas stocking.' When Mr. Bagthorpe learned that Ariok intended to hang up a stocking, he swore that he would personally ensure that it was filled to the brim with toads, and probably would have done, had the thing been feasible. Doable. Daisy had only just finished reconciling the disparate tins of paint when the decorators came down to put the final coat on the dining-room. "'Rum shade,' said one of them, dubiously eyeing the toad colour. "'There's more than shades rum around this place,' returned one of his mates. "'Rummest lot I've ever come across, that's definite.' No one could dispute this and so the four of them divided the toad colour into their individual tins, and set about the transformation of the dining-room. The Bagthorpes arrived home late, in a cheerful mood, with Christmas trees on the roof-rack, and a carrier full of food from the Chinese takeaway. The decorators had by then finished for the day, and Grandma and Grandpa were watching television, while Daisy wrote her latest thoughts on the back of Christmas cards. Mrs. Bagthorpe immediately tripped into the dining-room to inspect the progress of work, and almost swooned on the spot. With the bare floor, unshaded lights, and toad walls, it looked, as Mr. Bagthorpe said, a veritable hell-hole. "'There is no question of my ever eating anything in there,' he told Mrs. Bagthorpe. "'I could not down a single mouthful within walls of that shade. Have you gone mad, Laura?' Mrs. Bagthorpe, who prided herself on her taste in general, and colour-sense in particular, was so maddened by this that she and her husband were soon well into an all-out row, while the strains of Silent Night, Holy Night floated out from the television next door, and the Chinese food congealed in its carrier. Just as Daisy's guilt was finally established, Uncle Parker and Aunt Celia arrived to collect her, and all hell broke loose. The row ended with Aunt Celia, who has now immovably maintained that she did believe I'm sorry, who now immovably maintained that she believed in Arioch, and for that matter probably did, bearing Daisy off in her arms and screaming over her shoulder at Mr. Bagthorpe. "'You are a destroyer of innocence! You are a worm within the bud!' Mr. Bagthorpe followed the retreating Parkers to the front door and yelled after them, "'And don't you come back till Christmas Day, I warn you! "'If I see you back here again before Christmas Day, I'll—' "'The last part of the message of goodwill was mercifully drowned "'by the roar of Uncle Parker's exhaust "'and the spinning of tires on a violently scattered gravel. "'And that's the end of Part 1 of Chapter 15 of Absolute Zero. "'See you next time!'